Hey guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to this week's No Limits, the Scott Harvath Podcast. What's new this week, Mike? It is Rising Tiger Time. I've been waiting for this one ever since we got those arcs. It's close to a month ago now, and I opened it up at the White House, and I had it in my hands. I just wanted to tell you guys, the listeners, about this book, and today we get to do just that. Dude, I'm, it, it, I'm, I'm almost envious that we got to read this before other people did. It, it was really good. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about it with you. Yeah, no, like Scott just, or Scott, Brad just delivers again. Yes, uh, you know, keeps it clicking. And I think uh, we're gonna get into this, but I feel like this is setting a stage yes. for things to come. You know, yep. It's very much while it's you know very good book. I, I felt like one of the hallmarks of it, or one of the the advantages of it, was that. You can sort of see the direction he's going to go. He mentioned that he this is the first in a four book deal he has, right? Yes. So I feel like he has a plan, you know. So I'm yeah. I'm, I'm look forward to that plan. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just we got glimpses and a narrative pushed on at least one major player and fan favorite, the troll, and we also got Gary Lawler debriefed and given sit reps all along the way. So just I love these guys being brought back in, being part of the story. While we're also on an adventure in a whole nother part of the world with new characters we love. It, this book is almost everything I wanted, a blend of old OG Brad Thor and new Brad Thor that he's been doing, you know, since I would say near dark, you know, with Solvi and some of these new adventures Scott is on. This book just married both of those worlds for me. And while I don't want to say this in like a negative way, but it does feel like a one-off, but I... I enjoyed it, you know? Yes. It takes us out. There's no, like, overarching story to conclude. While, while we do have those those brief tendrils of connection to previous stories, very much Scott's in a new setting. You know, he's, he's you know, we're, we're going to go into all this, but it was different, you know? Mm-hmm. and But different in a good way. So, I'm, I agree. I'm, again, I'm excited to talk about, about this with you. But before we get into that, yes. we, have, we have a Patreon giveaway. Got to give away to the patrons. Yes, we do. I've got a collection of autographed Brad Thor books. And so, one of our patrons, and in case you don't know, our patrons are a fantastic, dedicated group of thriller fans. The most hardcore thriller fans you'll find out there. They financially support us, just a few bucks a month. They're the reason this podcast can happen. And for that, they get podcast stickers. Bookmarks, other swag, a 30% off coupon at the No Limits Gear store at our website, thrillerpod.com. Monthly giveaways. We've got autographed books. Once a month, we give them away. So every patron should have won at least one book by now. And also, we have our own patron group chat. If you want to chat with Chris and I and other thriller fans in the Group Me app, become a patron, help support this podcast, and get tons of perks. So. Let's spin that wheel. The winner will get to choose a signed copy of Spy Master, The Athena Project, Act of War, The Apostle, Code of Conduct, First Commandment, Full Black, Foreign Influence, Hidden Order. Who's going to get that choice? Here we go. Three, two, one. Insert spinning wheel music here. And <laughs> Daryl, big fan of the podcast, big fan Darryl. of all things No Limits. Daryl, we will be reaching out to you. Congrats on winning your signed Brad Thor book. There you go. Gotta love Daryl. All right, Mike. Should we get into it? Number 21? 
22 if you include the Athena Project? Well, let me tell you how I would like to share my thoughts on book number 21 in the Scott Harvath series. And I'd like to do that in the form of a limerick. You don't say. Brad wrote a new book called Rising Tiger. As China's global influence grows wider. Tis not an easy day, cause India came to play as the noose gets tighter and tighter. Ooh, that noose. There it is. Tighter and tighter. Dude, Brad outlines from the first chapter this massive hand-to-hand battle that happened in the Himalayas. And like he said in our interview, it's a factional story. Earlier in 2022, this attack did happen. The faction or the fiction part is he made this character uh, Major Banu. Right, and he right. had him trained with the SEALs and the Delta, you know, winter f- soldiers. He's got, I think, like a, what is it, a SEAL hatchet and a Delta knife on his belt. Yeah. He's got the tomahawk. Terminal yeah, list, baby. It, it's like, that's real stuff. Though That battle happened, and he's putting his characters into it. So that blending of fact versus fiction just gives this book such a authentic reality. And not to mention the noose growing tighter and tighter. The way Brad describes what China is doing and how they're maneuvering and what their long-term game plan is, economic partnerships with Pakistan, with Central Asia, trading relationships. The Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road. And then they also have the String of Pearls opening and investing in these massive seaports through the Straits of Southeast Asia, across the Indian Ocean, towards the Levant and the eastern coast of Africa. So China is just exercising its willpower and, in a sense, strangling off India because it sees India as the only viable threat and potential for a, a major superpower who is an ar- a nuclear armed superpower in the region. I, it's just incredible how he catches us all up to speed on that in just a few pages. Yeah, and I liked, you know, so obviously you guys listen to this now. This is how, now has come out after our interview with Brad. So I hope you go check that out. And he explains, you know, all of, all of his thinking, all of his, you know, sort of research into this book. But I liked one of the comments he said was, yes, America is the world's strongest democracy. Is it also the the world's first democracy? The oldest, yeah. But India is the largest. But India is the largest. And that has to be something taken, you know, you have to take that into account. And India needs to be strategized, needs to be a partner, needs to be brought in. And while, you know, these two regions need to be brought together, because of all these threats, especially like when you think about proximity to India, like they share a border with both of these major players that are our enemies, right? And when I mentioned like this whole idea of like a standoff or standalone novel and setting the stage for what's to come, he does a great job of laying out the threats that China poses. Yes. And I can see him sort of, or at least this is what I hope I see him going towards China, someone in China is going to be the big bad in the next three novels after, right. to come. And like, this is not Scott's final word, you know, him in, in the end, him getting Yang, right? That's, that's not the final player that he's going to have to deal with in, in the China regime, in the, you know, the communist party, right? Right. And think of that, what you exactly said as a continuation of Black Ice. Because when I read Black Ice, I was like, okay, also a standalone. Russia and the Arctic is kind of this isolated thing, you know, this operation in, in Norway, the Norwegian-Russian border up north. But now the Harvath universe has 
an aggressive Russia trying to dominate the Arctic waterways. Here we see the Chinese trying to dominate the Indian Pacific Oceans and most trade routes throughout Asia, which dominate the global commerce supply. So we've almost set up a universe in which it's no longer, you know, like a singular polar superpower that is America policing the world's waterways for freedom and, you know, ease of access. We now have like a tripolar system. And it's just like this incredible dynamic that's so similar to our world that Harvath is now going to have to operate in, you know, the next four or five, six books. Like the stage has been set. So because nobody can do it better than Brad, if you would forgive me, I don't have that many quotes throughout the book. Most of them are front loaded because the first three chapters are just mm. jam packed of this kind of detail. So if you if I could read this one setting up the state of world affairs and where China lies and all that, Brad writes, quote, the CCP's grip on power was increasingly tenuous. The panic of its members was palpable. Many in the party believed they were only one Tiananmen Square away from full-blown revolution. It was why they had crushed the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong, why they continued to flex their military muscle over Taiwan. One more crack in their hull, one more leak in their sagging waterlogged boat, and the CCP would slip beneath the surface of the waves and be dragged violently down to its death. To prop up the party and prevent such a demise, Beijing needed to fog the minds of its people, to convince them that they were locked in an existential struggle, that the world was out to destroy China. For their plan to take root and grow, Beijing needed bogeymen, both big and small, near and far. The U.S. and its Western allies were a natural fit. Another, exceptional contender, however, lay right at China's doorstep, India. Coercive statecraft to drive wedges between India and its neighbors over bloody cross-border raids to capture and hold disputed territory, China was feeling weak, and that weakness made them dangerous. Anything and everything was on the table, including the most contemptible and horrific acts of aggression. There it is. The stage has been set. You highlight the best, you know, what, what I wanted to highlight of this book. And not to say like the rest of it lets me down, but the opening to this yeah. book is freaking amazing. We, we went hype over, you know, getting the first two chapters as like a, you know, a preview. And it wasn't like any sort of, you know, we, we weren't like just doing it for the pod. We were doing it because it truly is an amazing first two chapters. And then yeah. that continues then once we, once Scott is introduced into the, um, the picture. And then what I like about this book is we stay with Scott for like four or five chapters or, or, or we stay. And then as soon as you, and then, Boom, he gets put into a perilous place, and then we go with a new character like Asha. Well, I was also going to say, I almost felt like I was along for the ride with Asha a bit more than Scott. When Scott met VJ, that's when he started carrying the load. But it was cool to see that because even when we were with Asha, I'm like, one, I can trust her. Like, sure, wholeheartedly trust her in operations and to do her job. And then two, on the back of my mind, I knew they were going to come together. And there oh, was yeah. this anticipation building of what she was doing and what she was after with her boss, Raj, who was pretty awesome also, you know, kind of like her Gary Lawler. And knowing that Scott was sent on this mission by Gary, I just, I, I love the two of them aligning, like what, three quarters through the book? But yeah, they, we don't, had, they don't meet each other until like page 250. Right, but it built, it built so much anticipation for when that happened and it paid off. Yeah, because like you're reading like a series of like three or four chapters with Asha, right? And then 
Yes. By that you're so engrossed in like what's going on there. And then finally, like when you get to the end, you're like, oh, wait, where's, where's Scott and VJ? You know, like, yep. and then the next chapter, Brad, you know, brings us right back, you know? So I never felt like I was, I, you know, like sometimes when we read, especially early Vince. Yes. The, one of the things I really disliked, and I, I mentioned it multiple times in the pod, I won't like hash it out too much, but just like the constant jumping around, we have to go from yes. like in the, I, and I feel like Brad has done this before in some of his books where we'll go from, we would have went from Scott to VJ to, to Asha to the bad guy, you know, and then it would have been like those four and it would have been repeated. Too much jumping. Yeah. But I like staying with them longer, yes. you know? Yeah. yeah. While still like, having those cliffhanger chapters. And again, I should say the chapter length in this book is amazing. It's like crisp. It, they're all, you know, there's some one, two page we had the arc so i actually had to read this one there's some like <laughs> one literally one you know one one half of a page yeah. and then you turn it over and the chapter ends uh yeah. sections and i don't know it just it again brad mentioned this on the interview how he's realized that when he said three the max he does is three pages i'm guessing like three three word pages is, right. is like what he was referencing not like right. actual like book pages printed pages yeah but he he does that in in the sense of all right we have younger audiences. I want them to read these books. It's been documented, you know, from the New York Times to the Washington Post to Fox News that they know that we have shorter attention spans now. Look, look yep. just that's why we have TikTok and Instagram. Like we, we can't pay attention for longer than 60 seconds, apparently. So how do we get them to read my book? All right. I'm going to have a 60 second chapter. And I'm, at the end of that chapter, I'm going to have a cliffhanger to make yep. them want to read the next chapter. Yep. And in turn, in the past when they would have read 17 pages for a chapter, I've gotten them to read 17 pages, but now it's just broken up into three chapters, you a know, few chapters, whatever. Right. Yeah. It's brilliant. I, it, it says, you know, I'm sure a lot of writers are doing this, but you know, I, I didn't really feel that the most recent book we, we read in the blood, those chapters were longer. Yes. And you know, sometimes they it dragged out a little bit, you know? Yeah. I, and even think of the earlier Brad books, like you said, our State one of the criticism of State of the Union, Path of the Assassin, and some parts of Lions, it just got a little long. long. It, yeah, it got waterlogged and a little five hundred page out. books, right? Yeah, and it was kind of crazy. On on one of them, I said I actually enjoyed the abridged audiobook, which for me, jeez, I'm a hypocrite. I never thought I would say that. Here, no, never, never. This book and Black Ice, they both read so crisp, so quick. So fast, there's no time to get bogged down and feel like you're just getting some exposition. That happens here a little bit, but it's just one chapter towards the end as a kind of denouement, which I actually liked. There's no point where this book slows down and you get lost. And I, th I think you're right to compare that to Vince, who is also really good at keeping your attention because I, I would say more because of his characters and dialogue. Where, where Brad is keeping your attention with these little cliffhangers and with the action and with this nonstop, just this nonstop action, the little cliffhangers, he follows up. So if it's a two-page chapter, you'll then get a three-page chapter of what happens next. Then that one ends with a cliffhanger, and it goes right into addressing that cliffhanger next. Right, right. Where Vince's cliffhangers would leave you for four or five chapters. Then when you came back to it, you were like, Wait, what is this group doing again? Who are they? And Vince was really, really cool in that 
it would come together, but the coming together was a slower burn, and it took a lot more mental gymnastics. Where Brad Thor, the pieces almost naturally fall into place because he's choosing to have a cliffhanger and then answer that cliffhanger, I, I feel like, right away. And that just makes it easier to track and follow. Yes, I, I completely agree. And that the buildup, the buildup to both, like either we're talking about Vince stuff, is different than the buildup that Brad has now, at least, you know? Yeah. Big time. And it leads to, you know, whether or not you think it's, you know, good or not, you know, it's up to you ultimately. But I think both of us agree that, you know, he did a good job with this one. Yeah. Let's get into the actual book. And I want to ask you something. When we got chapters one and two as a PDF and we read it and it was this excerpt and you and I were jazzed about it. Did you walk away feeling a little? Yeah, I almost feel like, you know, if a date left you or something, it's like, I kind of felt like I got gypped because Harveth wasn't even, not even mentioned, but not even hinted at in chapters one and two. And so when we got the excerpts, I was super stoked about them, but we didn't get anything with Harvath. And then a week before publication, they dropped chapter three as an Armand Schultz audiobook excerpt. And I lost my mind because that chapter three was everything I wanted. A Scott Harvath operating in the Middle East, trying to save his boy Topaz, who was an informant helping the Americans, who we left high and dry with the Taliban takeover 2.0 just last year. And man, Harvath was right in the midst of it. So were you happy to see chapter three, boom, kick it off right with Harvath in the field? Yeah. And when I was reading those first two chapters, I kind of got the feeling that the very next chapter was going to be Scott's introduction. It had to be, yeah. This has been a common trope that we've gotten not only with Brad or with, we got it a lot with, with Vince where, you know, or, or Kyle, where he, he'll, they don't start off the novel with Mitch you know, or Scott, yeah. like they started off with something else. And typically, typically in the second chapter or whether or not it's a prelude and, and then you get Jack the first Carr chapter. Jack did it in the blood. Right. It started off in with the that lady. Yeah. Yes. So it's like, it's like a thing that these thrillers are going with. You don't want to very rarely, I think in our entire Mitrap pod, you know, uh, run. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. I believe that there was maybe one or two books where the first chapter or even the prelude had Mitch in it. Um, so right. it's, you know, it's pretty common, but I, yeah, no, when I was reading that, I, I had a feeling like, all right, next chapter, we're, we're going to understand what, what Scott's into. And it's so different than because it's in Afghanistan, it's getting people out. You know, it's sort of like this, the precursor to like the real story, like that whole like action scene in Afghanistan, which is, is super cool. Great set but, action like, piece. I feel like they only released the first two chapters because that tells you like what the book is going to be about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, when, when we got that audio again, love Armand Schultz, he does Scott amazing. It's, it's a completely different vibe. You know, we, so different both, than George. both me and you just listened to George do state of the union. I guess Armand wasn't available or something for that. And we, we mentioned on, on the state of the union pod that it just felt different having George read. Yeah. It, it was good. You know, it, it wasn't like bad, though. but it just felt strange because Armand is, is, is Scott to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It, it felt like I was reading a Mitrap novel or listening to a Mitrap novel, you know? Yeah, I 100% agree. I love each of them, but each one I associate with their own domain. And so having them kind of flip-flop that one time, it it was a little rough. It was a little rough. But Armand Schultz, I listened to this audiobook as well. And again, Scott Harveth, 
nobody can do it better. We're on that Afghanistan scene, though, and here's another thing that comes to mind. I kind of like how that's where Scott is because it it kind of is a transition piece, right? It's showing the thrillers of the last decade, you know, post 9-11 and the last two decades, I guess you could say, were really Middle East extreme Islamic fundamentalism focused. That, that, that was the majority, right, of the bad guys right. and the ISIS, motivations and the villains. Al-Qaeda, Taliban. Right. Or, or if they weren't the bad guys, it was Westerners or people within our own government using them as scapegoats to be the bad sure. guys kind of storylines. I feel like by putting Scott there and then having him leave, he's quite literally extricating an asset and himself from this environment. And he's kind of ruining this defeat, if you will. I don't think anybody would say complete defeat, but it is a defeat in that the Taliban reestablished control. And he's almost mourning for the Afghan people. I kind of see that as a transition where Brad is now saying the new world is China. The new world is this rising tiger of India and these different geopolitical uh, power struggles. It's not really the whole wars in the Middle East, you know, state building and democracy building uh, in, in the Middle East anymore. It's a more complex new world with new players. So it's kind of a cool transition to put Scott there and then yank him out quite literally, you know, by the wing of a plane, which we got to get into, which is pretty cool. Thinking about the state of affairs where Scott's operating, I picked another quote. And again, the quotes are front loaded. So I'm, I have a lot up front. If you would, allow me to read another long one. Of course. Just listen to how perfectly the setting is, the stage is set. Quote, it didn't matter that everything was in full compliance. That That wasn't how things worked in a failed state. The law didn't matter. The rights of the individual didn't matter. The only things that mattered were brute force and one group's ability to successfully impose its will upon the rest of society. It was the antithesis of everything the U.S. had hoped to help the Afghans achieve. Sadly, and at tremendous cost, America had learned the painful lesson that democracy couldn't simply be handed to a people on a silver platter. The people themselves had to want it so badly that they would do anything for it. They had to be willing to fight and die, and not just some of them, all of them. Anything less than a complete commitment to their own freedom was a recipe for defeat and subjugation. That only added to the sickness Harvath felt. He knew and had worked with courageous Afghans, men and women willing to go the distance and do whatever they needed to be done. Unfortunately, the nation's tribalism and rampant corruption had doomed even the most noble of freedom fighters to a near-impossible battle against the Taliban and other terrorist organizations that had taken root once again like weeds throughout the country. In Harvath's experience, the Afghanis were good people. His heart ached for them not only for what they were suffering, but also because they had lacked the collective will to stave off and ultimately fight back against the monstrous regime that now ruled over them. They could have had a different future. They should have had a different future. It had been within their grasp. Like Scott's mourning this almost failure of two decades of policy that came to a head, you know, with the final pullout and the Taliban resurgence. Well, you know, we know that Brad is very versed in these geopolitical things. He, he likes to, he even said, how, how does he start a book? He finds a, a, some interesting geopolitical problem. How do I put Scott in that position? And how can I build a story out from that? Yeah. So it makes sense that he would want to comment 
not only on this, but there's multiple comments about the fight with uh, Russia and Ukraine. So he's, he, he puts his commentary on real life events in the novel, while not like, not super beating you over the head with it, not, not forcing you to believe, all right, my way, whatever I think is the right way, you know, you should believe, you know, you, you shouldn't believe anything other, it's other than this. It's educational though. It's yeah, educational. It's, it's, it's all, it's purely, I mean, it's, this, this is the fact part of the faction, right? Right. And to go back to your point about, you know, Scott and, and this transition, as I'm reading like why his extra extradition from Afghanistan, I started thinking, I was like, why is Scott even here? You know, like mm-hmm. you have to think, all right, how, how are we going to get my main player into the field of action? All right, let's have a side story where he has to go get this, you know, asset out. And then this leads to, you know, his next mission, the real mission. And I'm like, well, why put him in Afghanistan? And it kind of doesn't make, it doesn't, doesn't really click with the rest of the the novel but then when you were saying what you were saying i was like oh that makes complete sense it's a transition one brad wants to comment on the recent you know exit from afghanistan and two the reason he wants to comment on it is because this has been fodder for his entire books you know for you know up until we got the russia sequence you know for the last what three or four books mm-hmm. it was all based in the Middle East. That's right. You know, many of the novels, took, like a couple of novels took place in Afghanistan this or in Iraq. Pivot. It's a big yeah. pivot. And so the same thing, we saw the transition with Kyle, you know, at, right after 9-11, it was all about Al-Qaeda. And then transitioning into ISIS, now that ISIS is, you know, sort of gone away a little bit. Scattered. He had a transition to the to the Russians. And now, and now uh, Kyle chose to go inward yep. and look at, you know, homegrown or, you know, terrorism descent at home whereas brad has chosen to i want to show scott paying homage to all the theaters of war he's been before right and then i'm going to usher in you know the next chapter of his life and who the enemy is going to be in that next chapter right so it makes complete sense why you would start him in afghanistan and then move him into china or not even china but against the chinese right and something else and this might be getting a little meta I love that he's getting Topaz out because he knows how important he was to us and our mission. And he was one of those guys who would have fought to the bone, given everything. He did give everything to try to bring freedom to his people. And now that he was at risk, Scott had a duty to go get him out. And he was going to do it no matter what the higher ups authorized. You know, he got his assets. And the troll, Nicholas, is even on comms helping him find a safe house and this motorbike to get him out and directing him to the airport. So the whole network, the whole Carlton group, Scott is just getting the resources, marshalling his people to make sure he can he can save somebody who meant so much and gave so much to us and probably his men. So he wants to get this asset out. And here's the meta piece. Asha does the same for Siddiqui. The right. engineer, the Muslim right. Indian engineer who's getting blamed for the downing of a chopper in India. And it just occurred to me there's like a parallel of what Scott's doing in Afghanistan as kind of this bygone era he's got to move on from. And what Asha's doing to save this innocent person who she does not believe had any wrongdoing. And who is it? It was basically like the Secretary of Defense or the, one of the army generals whose helicopter sure. went down. Yeah. And the country is basically trying to sow division because India, major issues right now, by the way, of the current government under Narendra Modi trying to make it a Hindu state. 
and really putting Hindu politics front and center and marginalizing in many communities the Muslim minorities in parts of the country. And so a mob is sent after Siddiqui, thinking he was responsible for the Hilo crash, which killed this general in charge of the Indian armed forces. Asha's on the secret mission. Well, she makes sure to save Siddiqui's family. Like, there's no doubt in her mind, as soon as she hears this man's family's in jeopardy, she's got to be the person to do something. And she's calling right. in an extraction team, an exfil, and she's actually, she stole that uh, grenade launcher, the smoke grenade. She's a badass. Oh, absolute badass. And the way, this isn't even our first introduction to her, but by this time, we're almost seeing she's just as noble to her people and her cause as Scott has been his whole entire time operating in the Middle East and against whomever. He's going to get his people out who gave him what he needed. He's going to make sure, you know, they get what they need from him. And and Asha's doing the same. So I, I, I love that parallel. Yeah, and I think it that parallel and the similarities between her and scott add to like the fact that they don't meet up until much later in the book sort of it's okay because they're so similar and because like they 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 have this driving mission whereas like you you could you could feel like let's say like it was a lesser i want to call her an adversary but a lesser parallel figure you'd be like well scott just needs to hook up with like this person needs to get up with them sooner you know but the fact that she is, you know, kind she of his equivalent, she right? Holds she holds her own, and has this, you know, moral compass yes. in her country for yes. what she stands for. Um, it works, which might go against the political narrative at the time. You know, the same way Scott would operate against any extremism in our own country, or you know, right. be against radicalization of of people and. Asha's doing that for her people too, which is pretty cool, saving this Muslim family from a extremist Hindu mob. All right, so can we can we just go back and talk about Ritter? This he's in the yeah. second chapter. Yeah. He, that's the he dies at the end of the second chapter, and he's the sort of the basis for Scott's mission throughout the entire rest of the novel. What did you think of of the character? Did you want more of the character? Um and at, at first, so I hadn't read I still haven't read Black Ice, so I was like, wait. I texted you, was Ritter in Black Ice? Like, I, I felt like I should know this character, or I felt like this character may have popped up before. And I tried to, you know, go back and look. And no, it's just another person in Scott's life who, you know, operated in the background. We never, obviously, he was fairly close with Scott for Scott to, like, want to go avenge his life. But yeah, just what did you think about Ritter? Yeah, he was killed off really quick, but. Some people, did you hear Brad said some people were very upset with that because they loved this elder statesman, right? Larger than life diplomat who could also, while being a diplomat, do some different missions. Reminded me of the old man. Yeah, exactly. Or or Lawler or Gary Lawler. It could be any one of them in their heyday. And he's kind of being brought out of retirement for this one very important critical diplomatic mission that has to be kept under the rug. So – yeah, I loved him because that he had that gravitas and that persona, and we believed it in such a few short pages of who he was. Yeah, we never saw him before. That Because of that, I could believe that Scott had a good relationship with him, maybe knew of him or maybe protected him or understood a lot of the goals he was working on. Ritter maybe was behind the scenes doing the diplomacy, the diplomatic side that can keep his people safe. 
you know, operating and pushing whatever agenda they needed to. So I really like that. I was okay he died because it gave me the Flinian shock. I compare this to Fitzgerald right. in term limits. Right. Senator Fitzgerald, the fat cat on the appropriations committee, just getting drunk, going at, you know, loose with women, and then boom, he comes home to his house in the first scene we ever hear from him, and he gets killed in the hallway. You know, having Ritter get killed just made me go, whoa, what is this about? What was he working on? Who wants him dead? And the payoff of that, I think it was a phone call with Gary Lawler, or maybe it was the video conference with the president. Right. When when we get told what Ritter was working on and why his mission needs to be continued and and what he was charged with can't fail, he was working with India to be the leader of a South Asia, Southeast Asia, Oceanic pact that would be like the NATO of the Pacific and Indian Oceans to counter China's influence. And to me, that is so cool. And if you needed someone to lead that effort, I don't think it could be Australia. I think they're just a little too distant culturally. Sure. Economically, they're tied. And isolated. Yeah, and they're geographically isolated, just a little too far. So I think India would have to be that player, that force, the regional powerhouse to lead the countries in in forming an alliance. You know, your Vietnams, your Singapore, your Philippines, you know, and saying we with our strength, naval and military, are willing to defend your rights to the seas, you know, the South China Sea, the East China Sea against China's aggression. And when I found out he was working on that, oh my God, being the geography nerd I am, my mind was blown that that's in a thriller novel. It was so cool. Yeah, very much so. So right after the scene, we already mentioned, you know, Scott's in Afghanistan. I just wanted to briefly talk about, we've sort of like discussed, you know, the gravity of it, but the action is probably the best action in this entire novel, you know, the chase scene, maybe my favorite action. I don't know. There, there's some other good yeah. action later on in the novel. There's a lot of good stuff, but this is up there for sure. The chase scene, he, he gets in a car accident and he gets out and like his, his, his gun flies out yeah. and he's able to get it and, you know, get the guys and then run away. And then he has to get this, he, he gets this uh, motorcycle. Well, first he has to go to a CI safe house. Yeah. And, you know, he gets out of the safe house with the motorcycle Gets to the, oh, like, misses the plane, essentially. Oh, he stops at that gas station to buy the weapons. Right. And then takes the RPG, uses that on a gate. <laughs> and then, like, I just imagine this, you know, some Tom Cruise, like, bullshit. It was Mission Impossible stuff. Yeah, yeah. Driving a motorcycle up into this, you know, about to taxi off the runway. And it's an aid plane carrying humanitarian aid that they kind of negotiated. Tajikistan, right? Um, yeah, they're going to Dushanbe, so out of Afghanistan to Tajikistan, and uh, that's where he meets up with that embassy liaison, who was actually a pretty cool little side character who was like, whatever you need, I'll give you the stuff, don't tell me what you're doing here, I'll hook you up on this secure video conference with the White House, won't say anything about it. I'll tell you what and what not to eat. Yeah, exactly, tells him what to eat and not eat in the region, and, and then later in India. Yeah, okay, you know what, I was thinking about it, I'm going to give it to you because I forgot the same sequence that starts with the accident in that traffic circle in Kabul and runs all the way to him riding the motorcycle up the ramp of the moving airplane. That's the best action sequence in the book. It's just nonstop action. By, like yeah, from, by far. You're yeah. right. Yep. That gate, too. There's like a, a gate on the opposite side of the airport. 
that the Taliban haven't really thought was worth putting any sort of security into. And that the CIA used to sneak out people. Yeah. Right. And this rundown uh, gas station that also they thought was abandoned was a meeting place for him to do the arms deal, which was kind of cool. I think it was the arms dealer also who somehow had a connection to the humanitarian aid group who chartered the plane to get them out. Like, just cool stuff going on there. Yeah, and we get Nicholas in action. He's, you know, providing Overwatch. Yep. Codename Moonracer. Like, Moonracer, yep. Love to see Nicholas back in action. Don't love the fact that him and his wife get put into, you know, yeah. peril with the use of a Havana Syndrome uh, weapon. Really, like, you know, it was ultimately a minor subplot throughout the novel but you know it just every every time every now and every couple like 10 chapters we would cut back to nicholas and what he was doing you know and then then he gets hurt and then him and his wife gets hurt and the baby's not doing well and that was a big sort of cliffhanger that scott never resolved we we asked him the question he says the baby's going to be okay but yeah didn't like that at all i like i mean i liked it but didn't like that for nicholas you know Oh, correct. And he and Brad told us the baby's okay and was was healthy. And I'm sure that's true. But it does leave me wondering what's the effect of this on Nicholas and his operating capacity, you know, sure. uh, on the Carlton group, because he's going to want revenge, uh, more revenge. Yeah, you know? he, he's he's got to turn dark, right? Or I just wonder what he's going to do. Let's say the baby is 100% healthy, which I have a hard time believing. I think there's going to be some sort of maybe developmental you know, uh, hold up there, which could even just drive him deeper into revenge. So, and, and just the way his wife was attacked and uncomfortable, he wasn't there to protect her, didn't have the dogs around because they went down. I'm just like, it's something he's going to do something very soon. That's going to upset the apple cart. And whether that draws Scott closer to him to understand what he's going through, whether it drives a wedge between people and he has to go on his own and kind of gets derailed. I don't know, but something something's in store. He also he goes pretty badass. He wants Put better security, so he sets up claymores all through the woods. And as soon as the next attack happens, he just boom sets them off. And what do you think about who it then was? Then he saves the day. Yeah, he saves the day, and he recovers the weapon. What do you think about? And he saves the day later. Right, right, right. What do you think about how he blew up that woman and her cover story is this deep Chinese operative, like an MIT grad student or something? It was kind of cool. Yeah, no, that, that you know, Brad sprinkling in those things here are obviously the faction part of this. And I don't know, it just, it, it was believable. This this whole plot is going to get a high, uh, you know, believe, buy-in from us because, you know, pretty much he, he lays the groundwork with facts and then bleeds it into the fiction. And therefore, I, I think it, it does really well in terms of, you know, you really believe this story. You believe that stuff like this could happen. You want to hear something crazy on that? Because she was a Chinese plant who was a grad student at MIT who they secretly were using to hold on to this directed energy weapon that they wanted to use against Nicholas and eventually probably Scott and, and whoever. Crazy story here, but my wife, Rosie, she works for Johns Hopkins, their School of Advanced International Studies. And this was wild. Recently, they got a notice that a graduate of their program, who was an international studies uh, grad student, he was detained by Dutch police trying to get into The Hague. And it wasn't even Dutch police. It was the Dutch intelligence service. They detained him and found on him 
a four-page manual that was his backstory because he was a Russian sleeper agent. He graduated, got his degree in international affairs from Johns Hopkins University, was a deep sleeper agent. The Russians activated to get an internship at The Hague, and he was going to get an internship at The Hague, and secretly he'd be working to get the Russian government information on their war crime uh, proceedings for Ukraine and both Georgia years ago. It just was a crazy news story that broke. Like, that stuff is real. And so I definitely believe the Chinese could be storing this major super weapon with some, you know, innocuous seeming grad student. Yeah, when you read stories like that. It's true. It's all true. It it makes you, like, believe more, like, some of these thrillers that you read. You know, like, it just ups the believability of some of the things you read. And he's like, no, nothing like that could ever happen. And then you read it and, like, shit, maybe that is happening. It was what the Americans was based off of. The FBI, I think, busted a string of like a bunch of sleeper agents, sleeper agents just living in Bethesda who had like regular lives and were raising kids born in America. Like, man. Yeah. No, that's crazy, dude. It's fucking crazy. It's insane. Well, what do you think? Nicholas is down. Just recovered the weapon. We know Asha is working with Raj, her boss. She already got Siddiqui out of the. Uh, the airbase and saved him and his family. And now they've got information to go after this gang, the G company, who they think was hired to be behind the mob attack and some other hits. And we've got Scott, who is just being directed through Dushanbe in Tajikistan and now being totally sent to a new location out of the blue to head directly to India, where he's going to link up with the Foreign Service National Investigator, who the embassy hires as a retired cop. And I think we should pick up part two with Scott and VJ and all of their adventures on the streets of India. Yeah, I guess we should just, you know, mention that the f- sort of where this whole next part of the story is going is how these stories are going to collide. You know, who who put the attack on Nicholas? You know, who put the attack on that helicopter and eventually is going to want to go after Asha? And then who killed Ritter? And so that sets up, you know, the entire rest of the novel yeah and i think i think we should pick up in part two there nice next time we'll be giving you part two of our rising tiger breakdown again we need to thank our patrons our special operator sherry f our special agents daryl kevin george matt don dennis peggy Catherine, ray bridget jeff and mark please subscribe rate and review using your favorite podcasting platform you can find us online at thrillerpod.com or using Twitter and Instagram at thrillerpodcast. And as always, three keys to a happy life. Something to do, something to love, and something to look forward to. And just a disclaimer, this podcast is not affiliated with Brad Thor, Scott Harvath, or Simon & Schuster. The music soundtrack is Honor Bound by Brian Teo.